this week is Parshat Vayishlach, and Vayishlach is chock full of all sorts of great things. Of course, there's the whole reunion between Yaakov and Esav, both it's in, in its anticipation, uh, and of course, in the actual reunion, and in the middle of that, there's the whole wrestling match with the Malach. Um, there is, uh, of course, the whole story of Dina, which we've talked about in the past, um, and Reuven and Bilha, and then there's the very strange Toldot Esav, like, what's it doing there, and who cares? Uh, but in the middle, there's a tr- very brief but tragic story that we all know, which is the story of the death of Rachel. And the question I want to pose is one that I haven't really seen addressed very much, which is why did Rachel die? Now, it, it, it may be that the reason it's not addressed is because there's nothing to ask. People die, and women die in childbirth, and it's not so unusual. Uh, and so Rachel died. Um uh, another uh, to add to that is the fact that Rachel was barren for quite a while and then finally had kids. And clearly that was a difficult thing for her. Uh, as a matter of fact, she saw it as an, as a, as a, uh, manifestation or as a, an, as a, as leading to her shame. And therefore, when her first kid was born, she called him Asaf. Asaf Elohim et Cherpati and then changed it to Yosef Adonai Ben Acher. In other words, that, that's quite a thing. You know, I have this one miraculous child to have another one. And after all, Sarah, who gave birth at the age of 90, didn't even seem to imagine the possibility of having another one. And that wasn't on the, in the docket. Um, Rifka and Yitzchak, who waited for 20 years, had twins. But that seems to be it. We don't hear about any other kids. So it could be that having another kid was really a dangerous thing for Rachel and that that may have done her in. Um, but let's see, because there is, um, what seems to be, and people do point to this as being the direct or proximate cause for Rachel's death is something that we see in the Psukim. So let's like first look at the Psukim that describe her death, and then we'll look at what may be the background. All right. At right after, uh, leaving Shechem, they come to Beit El and Yaakov builds a Mizbeach. Hashem appears to him and tells him, I'm giving you the land. And, uh, and you're going to have lots of kids and you're going to have great kids and he commands them to have kids. And then he begets, wakes up, builds him his beach, uh, makes a matseva, sorry. Um, and then, uh, and then we get to this passage. We continue traveling. We're not going to talk about the location here because we've done that number of times about where this actual place is. Uh, but they're on the road and Rachel goes into childbirth and has a difficult time. As that's happening, don't be afraid. This is another son, which of course is, seems to be a non sequitur. And right, so she named the child as she was dying, Ben Oni, which of course is something that is uh, is repeated later on in history when Eshet Pinchas gives birth and names the kid Ichavod, again, a, 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 a negative name. But here, father changes the name to Binyamin. In that case, of course, her husband's dead, so Pinchas is dead, so he can't do that. That's in Shmuel Aleph Perdalad. Here, Yaakov changes the name to Binyamin, the son of my strength, which, of course, is a plan, Ben Oni, because Oni means mourning. My mourning, but Oni also means my strength. Reshit Oni, right? Or who Reshit Ono. So it could be the Yaakov is playing with Oni as an equivoke and changes it to another word for strength, which is Yamin. It could be. 
So even though this is the central parsha that tells the story, there's nothing here that gives us a hint as to why Rachel died. She died in childbirth. And again, you can raise our hands and say that's what it is. But if we can find something more, we will. So most people will point to this passage as being the key. Uh, Yaakov runs away from Lavan. And uh, Lavan hears about it and is angry. And he's angry for two reasons. One is a broad reason and one is a narrow reason. The broad reason, Lavan says, I'm angry and it makes sense. You ran away, you left like a thief in the night. You took my kids away like they were captives. Why didn't you tell me? And I would have had a party and all this stuff, right? And what's the specific thing he aims at is Lama Ganavta et Elohai. It's in big, big print there. Why did you steal my idols? Now, parenthetically, I just want to ask the question, and it belongs to Barsha Vayetze, and we're not going to talk about it, but if anybody has any thoughts, I'm interested in find out. How does Lavan knows, know that his gods are gone? After all, Lavan heard that Yaakov had run away while Lavan was out herding way north of where he lived. And the sense of the text is that he then went on a beeline directly after Yaakov, which means he didn't stop at home. So how, do you, how does he know the, the Trophim are gone? But right, that's for another year and, and, and a different Parsha. Um, but he accuses Yaakov of stealing his, his Trophim. Right? And now Yaakov in Pasuk Lamed Aleph explains why uh, he left in a hurry. And then regarding the Trophim, he says in Pasuk Lamed Bet, Now this is a classic bluff. Meaning Yaakov is convinced that nobody took the idols. So he's willing, it's not really a bluff, but it's like an, an exaggeration for credibility. Which is if if my if anybody is found with my with your gods, they will die. Now that, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm condemning them to death. Maybe I will act towards them. In other words, if it's a slave, we'll kill them. Right? But he's trying to make basically say nobody stole your idols, and none of nobody in my camp. And he says, You find them, you could take them. And of course, the text adds in, Right? Yaakov did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Now, um, what is it? Why is the text add that in? So on a simple level, it's adding it in because Yaakov thought that the idols were not in his camp. He didn't know that they were in his camp. He didn't know that Rachel had taken them. On a deeper level, what some people want to claim is that Yaakov condemned to death anybody who took the idols. And, of course, he didn't know Rachel had them because he never would have said that. Okay, and it's an interesting theory. But there, there are a couple of problems with this theory that indicate that right here is the reason that Rachel dies in childbirth. Reason number one is why do we think that Yaakov has such power? In other words, is Yaakov saying, listen, I'm telling God that whoever stole the idol should die, and then God says, oh, Yaakov said they got to die, I'm going to kill them? That's a little strange. That doesn't seem to be what Yaakov's saying. Yaakov, first of all, is saying this as what we would call in halachic terminology an asmachta, meaning he's convinced nobody took it, and he's going to an extreme statement to establish the credibility to say anybody who did, I'll have them killed. He's not saying they'd be killed by divine. I'll have them killed. Of course, he doesn't mean it because he doesn't think anybody stole them. So, Mapito, why are we thinking that this now creates a chain where Yaakov has un- unknowingly um, uh, convicted his own wife to death because that's what he said. That puts a lot of power in his words that we don't find a model for. 
The second thing is that when does Rachel die? If this were the case, what should happen on the spot? Rachel should wilt and die. But she doesn't. She's alive. She may already be pregnant. We don't know how long they're in Shechem. But, uh, but, and, and in Sukkot, all of this is, is afterwards. It's quite a while until Rachel gives birth and dies in childbirth. Why does she stay alive all that time? So you can argue, and I'm just, you know, the Shitazu, you could make the argument that this put her in mortal danger and the childbirth exacerbated the danger. And, right, so like the Mishnah says, Right, so the Gemara says, "Why bishat leidatan? How come a woman's not careful about those three things that she doesn't die right away?" The answer is because bishat leidatan is a time of great physical stress and a great spiritual um, examination from on high. And if you're found wanting, so it's a time you'll die. Okay, could be, but I think it's still kind of difficult. I'd like to look elsewhere for the answer, and I'd like to. To, um, to take us to a scene that happens uh, at the end of Yaakov's life. Because um, yeah, the story of Rachel's death appears in its narrative context, which we just read, which is in Parshav Yishtach, and it appears as a reference at the end of Yaakov's life on his deathbed, mm-hmm. or what he thinks is his deathbed. It seems to be close to his deathbed which is the famous scene of Menashe and Ephraim and the hand crossing. And at the beginning of that piece, you have to remember that Yaakov had already made Osef swear that he would bury him in Hebron and not leave him in Mitzrayim. And so most people read the introduction of this passage as being an apologia that that uh, that uh, Yaakov is presenting to Yosef, saying, even though I did not take your mother when she died on the road, to have her buried in Hebron, nonetheless, I'm asking you to do that with me. And what's the line? He says, Rachel died on me. We have to see what that means. And then, basically, it tells us the same location. And I buried her there. Okay. Now, what does Meita'alai mean? What does that mean? So the Targum and, and other Parshanim read this as Meta suddenly. Meta bitkef, meaning that she died suddenly. It was like, you know, I was in the middle of doing something else and then she died. Right? Meta alai. But that's a little bit of a strange phrase. Meta alai may mean something a little bit different. It may mean she died on my account. That Yaakov was taking responsibility for the death of Rachel. With the word Allah. Now, why would the word Allah be some sort of a big thing? So keep that in mind. We're going to come back to it. I want to add one other piece to the puzzle is that at the end of this scene, the very end of this scene with Menashe and Ephraim, where he mentions the death of Rachel, he also invokes something which is very strange and nobody can really figure it out. In Pasuk Chafalaf, at the end of that parak, is Vayom Yisrael Yosef, I'm about to die. Right, so now God's going to bring you back to the land. Now notice how this vani chafet matches the vani here, as if to kind of highlight the pasuk. And as for me, 
I have given you an extra shechem, right? Which could refer to an extra portion, but it could also refer to the city of Shechem. And by the way, that is the territory of Menashe, and that's right in the heartland of, of the territory of Yosef. And it sounds as if Yaakov was involved in the war in Shechem, which he said, and I took it with my sword and my arrow, as if he was involved in the war, my sword and my bow. But of course, Yaakov was not involved in the war, and we're going to take a look at that right now. So let's roll back to that war and see something interesting happen. In Paraklamadal, which is in our parsha, the war in Shechem, we find the following. Remember, the setup is that uh, Dina goes out to to see the girls in the land. Shechem takes her. I'm not going to name the details of what actually happens there, but the negotiations start, and Shechem and Hamor come out to the field, and they meet uh, Yaakov and his family. Right? They meet actually Bnei Yaakov. And they say, my son, Shechem, would like to marry Dina. Let's do it. Let's intermarry. Let's become one tribe. Beautiful. So Bnei Yaakov answer deceptively. Right? They answer deceptively. And then what do they say? They say, of course, you know the rest. They say, we cannot let our daughter marry somebody who doesn't have Brit Milah. If you all agree to have Brit Milah, and of course it's a bluff. We assume they're going to say, are you kidding? Brit Milah? Forget about it. And so, okay, we're going to take Dina and go home. Surprisingly, they turn around and say, okay. And they go to the townspeople, and the townspeople say, okay. So they all do mass Brit Milah. What happens? The third day of their Milah. Everybody's in pain from the Milah. We know the scene. Shimon and Levi come and they massacre the city, right? And they take everybody. Now, scroll down to Pasuk Lamed, when Yaakov responds after this war. Remember, in at the end of his life, Yaakov is saying, I participated in this war. I took this town, and I'm giving it to you, Yosef. Here, you fouled me. Why? You fouled me, made me smell in front of the people of the land. I'm a small group. They're going to come and massacre me. But notice he again uses the word alai. So this word alai seems to be mitgalgel in the story of Yaakov. I want to show you one more example of it because it's a telling example. And then we're going to come back to... Uh, to, to where it really starts. The scene is that the brothers, nine of the brothers, come up to Canaan with bags of grain and money in the bags of grain, silver in the bags of grain, and they come back to Yaakov, and they tell him what happened, and Shimon has been taken hostage, and the only way we can come down is if we bring Binyamin. We all know the scene. Source 7. You have made me a bereaved father. Yosef enenu. Yosef's gone. Shimon enenu. Now Shimon's gone. You're going to take Binyamin? What does that mean? They're all on me? Well, what does that mean? It's a strange phrase. Matter of fact, the, all, the, all three words are unneeded. But what does Allah mean? 
So I'd like to suggest that Yaakov is actually pointing to a point early in his life, early in his career, early in the narrative, which set all of these things in motion. The taking of Yosef, the taking of Shimon, the taking of Binyamin, which he thought would be permanent, maybe. The war in Shechem, the death of Rachel. All of these things. Major events, all of them distressful and anxiety-ridden for Yaakov, all start with Alai. Where does Alai start? So let's roll back to... Um, to Breshit Chavzayin. Here it is. Rivka overhears Yitzchak saying to Esav, I think I'm about to die. Go hunt for me, bring in the hunt, and I'll give you a bracha. Rivka then turns to Yaakov and says, this is what I heard. You go and get goats and bring them, and I'll prepare them properly. And you bring them to your father to get a bracha. Go get two good goats. And I'll make them the way your father likes them. You'll bring them to your father and he'll eat. Because then he will bless you before he dies. What's Yaakov's response? And again, by the way, as we seem to see it in the in the war with Shem, his response to this is not ideological, but tactical. Right? In the in the Shem story, he doesn't say this is wrong what you did. He said, You're putting me in danger. Here he says, he doesn't say I'm I can't deceive father, but he says, Hey brother is hairy and I'm smooth skin. What if Father wants to embrace me? He's going to give me a bracha, he'll embrace me. <clears throat> then I will be a deceiver in his eyes. Instead of a bracha, I'm going to get a kola, a lie. What does Rivka say back? The kola is on me. But guess what? You really can't do that. When you get cursed, you get cursed. Go do it, and go. he goes and does it. Now, what happens as a result of this deception? Yaakov comes into Yitzchak with hairy arms and the food ready and calls himself Esav, and that might have been the right thing to do in the long view. But what was the impact on Yaakov? The first direct mm-hmm. impact was that Yaakov's life was now forfeit. Yesav was going to kill him. At least that's what he was told, and that's what he thought. He had to run away, and he ran away to Lavan. He comes empty-handed. So as, a, as opposed to coming like, like grandfather's slave did to get a wife for father with gold and camels and a very honorable kind of approach, he comes looking for work and looking for refuge. And instead of Yaakov coming up with camels and wealth and coming to Haran and saying, I'd like to ask for Rachel's hand in marriage and taking her with him, he comes as a poor guy. He ends up in Lavan's clutches. He ends up married first to Leah, then a week later to Rachel. And as a result of that, he has the most impossible situation you can imagine. Two sisters, jealous of each other, both married to the same guy. You can't ask for a, a better recipe for disaster. And it happens. The brothers 
have hatred within each other, stated by Yisnuoto. And of course, the brothers, many of the brothers, some of the brothers hate Yosef enough that they're ready to kill him. What happens as a result? Yosef gets sold, and as far as Yaakov is concerned, he's dead. And as a result of all that, we know when the brothers come down, Yosef takes Shimon captive and then demands Binyamin to come down. This all started here. How does Yaakov understand what happened? So let's roll it back again to the Orange Shem. But we're going to roll it back even further. Since Yaakov had to run away under those circumstances to Lavan, how did Yaakov have to operate while he was in Beit Lavan? He had to operate deceptively. He had to work in the shadows in order to succeed. Because he ran away to Lavan that way. As a result, and because Lavan treats him the way he does, and therefore Yaakov has to slip away and not leave with a party. So who else acts deceptively? Rachel. Rachel steals the idols. Now that she steals the idols, what does she do with them? She doesn't destroy them. She sits on them. And when father comes in, she doesn't say, I'm sitting on the idols. She said, I can't get up. I'm having my period. She acts deceptively. Everybody's deceiving her. So what happens when they get to Shechem? The brothers come and deceive the people of Shechem. Let's do Brit Milah. Oh, Yala. And then they come and massacre them. And so Yaakov says, V'nesfu alai v'ikuni. Yaakov is pointing to himself as being the responsible one in all of this because it started with his being willing to act deceptively towards his father. And deception just bred deception. Now, we move it further, and again, when the brothers come back and say, we have to come back with Binyamin, he says, Yosef enenu, Shimon enenu, Binyamin enenu, it's all part of this ally. It's a part of the ally kilat chabani. It's all part of my responsibility. And so parenthetically, what does he say at the end of his life about the war with Shem? He takes responsibility. He puts himself in the middle of that war because he's responsible for it. It's a war that was started through deception. It's all on his shoulders. So now, why does he say, Meta alai Rachel? I'm not saying what happened, I'm saying Yaakov's perspective. From Yaakov's perspective, Rachel died because of Yaakov's taking the bracha. And let's think about why that impact, specifically. Generically, because Yaakov introduces and maintains deception in the relationship. And the result of that is that his kids, his wives, act deceptively. And so Rachel steals the idols, and Rachel sits on the idols and says she can't get up. There's all deception in this whole relationship. And by the way, what happens when you deceive? So Yitzchak doesn't know what's happening with Yaakov and Esav. Rivka doesn't tell him. Rivka doesn't tell him about the Nevoah. It always unravels. So what happens when Rachel doesn't tell Yaakov I took the idols? Yaakov opens up and says whoever took the idols will die. That's not what kills her. What kills her is that this deception has now just continued in the family. 
And so when Yaakov looks at it and says, I'm the cause of all of this. And so he says, Meta alai Rachel. Rachel died on my account because of that deception that started so much of a ball rolling. He recognizes, perhaps, according to Midrash, he did, that she was the one who took the idols. Later on, he recognizes it. And that that caused his death. Not again because she took the idols, but because of all this deception that was brought into the family that all started when when Rivka said, and Yaakov then continued. That's not to say that Yaakov didn't do what was necessary, that Yaakov didn't do the right thing. Not saying that. But sometimes, even when you do the right thing, there's a price to pay, and the price can last forever. And we see how much it revolves throughout Yaakov's family, between Yaakov and his parents, between Yaakov and his siblings, between Yaakov and his father-in-law, between Yaakov and his wives, between Yaakov and his children, and among his children. And the children, how they act towards others. So when we ask the question, Lama, why did Rachel have to die? Rachel's death may be, and of course, add into the physical component and the age component and everything else, and the road component, the fact they're on the road. It could be that Rachel dies, at least from Yaakov's perspective, as a result of the deception that she engaged in, in the whole story of the idols, in the, in the Masa of the idols, and that that ultimately led to all of this falling apart. And Yaakov, at the end of his life, is taking an account. <clears throat> all those years ago, when I started my road, leaving home, I left home because of deception, and ever since then, deception has been something that's dogged me. Parenthetically, it's something that Chazal see numerous times in Bereshit. I'll give you two quick examples in the couple minutes that we have left. First of all, um, famous Midrash, that when Yaakov wakes up that morning with his new bride in bed, and he looks and he sees it's Leah, so in the text, he comes to Lavan and complains. In the Midrash, he first talks to Leah. And he says, you deceiver, daughter of a deceiver, Ramah bat Ramah. All night I was cooing, Rachel, Rachel, and you were saying, yes, yes. And she turns around and says, big deal, big shot. And the whole time your father was saying, Esav, Esav, and you were saying, yes, yes. Very powerful. <clears throat> Later on, you have the, the Midrash's take is that it was Yehuda who took the cloak and sent it to, ya- to Yaakov with the blood of the goat, saying it was, that you know, giving the impression that Yosef was dead. And he uses the words, Hakerna Hakton bin recognizes this your son's cloak. And that's how he got Yaakov to believe that Yosef was dead, causing him years of anguish. Same Yehuda in the next parak goes to visit what he thinks is a prostitute and leaves collateral with her. And then comes back later on, sends a goat back for payment to collect the collateral. She's gone. You know the story, there's Yudah and Tamar. She's gone. And Yudah insists, go find her because this is a shaming, I should pay my debt, etc. By the way, there's no shaming seemingly in his visiting her, but in, in not paying. What happens? He finds out a few months later that Tamar is pregnant. And um, and of course, that's pregnancy, which is outside of the family. And Yudah condemns her to whatever Sreifai is. But what does she do? She doesn't famously say, you're the father. Right? That's the famous Kamara, that better person should 
be thrown into a furnace and they bear, bear somebody. But instead she says, Recognize whose collateral this is. And the Midrash says that Yehuda understands this on a much more sublime level. That not just, oh yeah, I'm the guilty one, but she's reminding me of the words that I use to fulfill. <laughs> he used Hakerna to get his lie across, his deception across, so he was reminded with the word Hakerna. And that's his big chuva. So we see that this theme of deception coming back to attack the deceiver, as it were, is a theme that midrashically courses throughout Bereshit, but really in the text itself it does. And I think the word alai might be the key to seeing that. So hopefully a little more insight into understanding why it is that Rachel died in childbirth, giving birth to Binyamin in Eretz Binyamin.